every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Hi and good morning. A warm welcome to Money Talk for Wednesday the 17th of January 2024. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Donald Trump has won a landslide victory in the Iowa caucuses, cementing his status as the clear front-runner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. The former U.S. president took 51% of the votes from districts across the Midwestern state. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis edged out former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley to take a distant second place with just over 21% of the votes, while Miss Haley won around 19%. China will unveil crucial economic data later today, including fourth quarter GDP growth, retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investment, unemployment rates and the house price index. But ahead of the official data release, Premier Li Chang revealed at the World Economic Forum in Davos that China's economy grew by an an estimated 5.2% in 2023. He said in promoting economic development, we didn't resort to massive stimulus. We didn't seek short-term growth while accumulating long-term risks. Rather, we focused on strengthening the internal drivers. Fed Governor Christopher Waller said Tuesday that the central bank was within striking distance of taking inflation back to its 2% target. But he also intimated that market expectations of six rate cuts this year might be too aggressive. He said there was no reason to move as quickly or cut as rapidly as in the past. U.S. forces on Tuesday carried out fresh strikes on targets linked with Houthi militants in Yemen. More ships are avoiding the key shipping route through the Red Sea, instead taking a longer journey between Asia and Europe via the Cape of Good Hope and delaying deliveries to companies. Volvo Cars said on Tuesday it's halted production at its factory in Belgium after shipping disruption in the Red Sea delayed delivery of gearboxes to the Swedish carmaker. And separately, British oil maker Shell suspended all shipments through the Red Sea, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Enzio Ronfal, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wingfung Financial Group. And with a view from Japan, it's Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. If you have any comments about the show or any questions, please post them on my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, or on my Facebook page, which is Peter Lewis Money Talk. On X, you can tweak me, uh, tweet me at moneytalkr3. Peter On Wall Street, US stocks closed lower Tuesday after Fed Governor Christopher Waller said the central bank could cut interest rates this year, but the process should be carefully calibrated and not rushed. All three major indices closed in the red overnight. The S&P 500 slipped 0.4% to end at 4,766. The Dow declined 232 points or 0.6% to close at 37,361. The Nasdaq Composite dropped 0.2% to 14,944. Shares of leading US-listed Chinese companies fell with the Invesco Golden Dragon China Index exchange-traded fund down 3.6%. EV company NEO's ADRs were down 8.7%. Baidu, the owner of China's largest internet search engine and e-commerce giant JD.com, slid about 4%. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was up 13 basis points at 4.08%. That's the highest since early December. 
the US dollar index, climbed 0.7% to reach a one-month high of 103.34 as risk appetite waned. The yen slid 1% to 147.22 against the dollar at fresh one-month lows, and the offshore yuan depreciated half a percent, past 7.22 per dollar, hitting its lowest levels in over a month. As the dollar surged, spot gold prices tumbled. Gold closed 1.4% lower at $2,028 an ounce. Oil prices rose Tuesday in choppy trading as investors monitored mounting Middle East tensions, particularly in the Red Sea. The Brent futures contract for March climbed 0.2% to settle at $78.29 a barrel. Hong Kong shares slumped the most in three months ahead of fourth quarter GDP data and December economic activity figures later this morning. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 350 points, that's 2.2%, to a 14-month low of 15,866. The city's benchmark index has retreated now 6.9% since the new year, the worst start to a year since a 10% drop in the first two weeks of trading back in 2016. A closely watched index for Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong fell to its lowest level in a year. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index closed 1.9% lower on Tuesday to its lowest level since the final days of China's zero COVID policy in November of 2022. The tech index, that dived to 2.3%. Shares on the mainland held up as Chinese authorities have in recent days told some institutional investors not to sell stocks. The CSI 300 of the largest listed companies in Shanghai and Shenzhen rose 0.6% to 3,301. But the index has fallen 3.8% since the start of 2024 to an almost five-year low. And looks like the selling is going to continue this morning. Uh, Hang Seng projected to open 120 points lower. Uh, That's 0.8% starting the day around about 15,750. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We're midway through the week. Let's welcome our Wednesday guests. We have with us Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning, Enzio. Morning, Peter. And also joining us, Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wing Fung Financial Group. Happy New Year, Mark. Happy New Year. Good morning. Uh, let's start with China's um, economy, an important day today. We're going to get uh, crucial data, which will include Q4 growth, retail sales, industrial production, fixed asset investments, unemployment rates, and the house price index all coming later uh, today. The government's expected to reveal this morning that GDP grew about 5.2%, according to a Reuters poll of analysts. That's up from 4.9% in Q3. And while that will slightly exceed the official target of 5%, economists said 2024 was expected to be more challenging, with the same poll predicting growth will slow to 4.6%. And the base effect of comparison with 2022 probably flattered China's GDP growth last year by about 2% points. 
That's according to Hui Shen, who's the chief economist at Goldman Sachs. However, the cat is out of the bag because ahead of the official data release, Premier Li Chang revealed at the World Economic Forum in Davos that China's economy grew at an estimated 5.2% in 2023. He said in promoting economic development, we didn't resort to massive stimulus. We didn't seek short-term growth while accumulating long-term risks. Rather, we focused on strengthening the internal drivers. Um, NCO, let me just start with that point. Um, Not so great, is it, when clearly um, sensitive data, embargo data, is released by a um, a Chinese official, albeit the premier, um, at a public conference? Not really the way to do it, is it? Not really the way to do it, but I'm I'm concerned more about the what than the how. Um, I just think that the I call GDP a god darned problem, not gross domestic problem, not gross, to gross domestic problem uh, product. And the the reason I say that is because the government will come out yet again later today, citing many cyclical factors that need to thus be rectified with cyclical tools. When in fact, China's real growth problem has to do with the policy arena, this party state capitalism that we can get to later. But mm. I just wanted to highlight that as, as a, to set the frame. In my mind, the party state capitalism is actually throttling the economy. It is not the cyclical factors and the cyclical tools to combat a structural problem just won't work. And one of those cyclical tools that we already know we're probably going to see is more borrowing, increasing debt, more borrowing through special bonds to go and fund investment in favoured, um, presumably, party state capitalism sectors. Yes. And, and of course, do for money. Yes. Yeah. Uh, OK. So, so what that means is that if, if, if investors are banking on this, then they should they might want to they might want to ride that very short bubble but then get out again because it's the, the growth will continue slowing down regardless of how they dash how they bash the digits. Mm, okay, so 4. I want to talk or 5.2. I want yeah. to talk more about party state capitalism in a moment and also about the rising mm. debt levels in China as well. Before we do that, Mark, let me get your um, thoughts. 5.2% growth it's not actually bad, is it? It's um, clearly above uh, the government's official target um, of 5%, although we should bear in mind, as mentioned earlier, that um, this is all flattered by Chinese, uh, by the base effect of comparison with 2022, and some economists estimating that you should really take maybe two percentage points off of that growth. But what do you think about the performance? Well, uh, I think uh, if you take the numbers uh, at, at the very, very um, superficial level, uh, it seems good, uh, but of course, uh, you, you have uh, mentioned the basic fact as well. As, uh, I think um, uh, it is more important to understand the structural problem. I agree. I tend to agree with uh, Enzo uh, because um, it seems to me that the overall uh, situation is more about um, the uh, last 10 years old. Uh, you, you have seen the rules of the game may have changed and people lost the confidence. And uh, somehow it is very uh, difficult for the authorities to uh, change their, uh, their expectations again, uh, especially because uh, they, they have long-term plans. They have to uh, do a lot of reforms in different sectors. But actually, uh, these various sectors like the property sectors are actually 
an indicator of the uh, expectations of of the wealth or the permanent uh, income, uh, so that the people will have more confidence in uh, spending. And it is all interrelated. It is very hard to target one sector uh, at the expense of the others without uh, a significant significant impact on the overall level. Mm. And, and what do you make of uh, Premier Li Chang's comments that um, in promoting e- economic development, we didn't resort to a massive stimulus and, and we didn't accumulate long-term risks? Well, maybe people are disappointed with the stimulus, but there are definitely some quite big long-term risks, aren't there? There in particular, um, just the amount of borrowing that's now being done to try and um, sort of promote growth. Um, I, I think uh, um, different people may have different perceptions on the expected risk or return, uh, the trade-off. Uh, but actually, uh, in the past 40 years, uh, since the reform in Chinese economy, I think one of the very important drive for the uh, for the for the growth uh, for the uh, very very wonderful growth in human history is the uh, change in the. Uh, a market system. I, I think it is very important, and it is not uh, going to be uh, replicated. And uh, I, I don't think that we can uh, experience that kind of growth again. Now we are going back to a more normal. You, you, you may say it is re, uh, mean reversion or some kind of a resume to normalcy. And uh, plus the cyclical uh, uh, factors, all these combined together. But I tend to think that. Uh, the debt problem uh, that the, the, the Chinese authorities are particularly concerned is more like um, the Japanese uh, experience. They would not like to uh, uh, replicate that kind of thing again, especially because uh, the Chinese economy is uh, a multiple uh, of uh, of the Japanese economy. If the problem uh, exas- uh, exacerbates, it, it is very difficult for, for, for them to handle again. So they try very much attention and, and uh, efforts in the past few years. But of course, there must be some kind of pain. And whether they can they can handle it, I, I think uh, it is very important for, for the people to form that kind of confidence. But right now, I don't think that the uh, the people uh, really have that kind of confidence based on the past few years' economic performance. And Enzio, let me ask you about this debt um, issue. I mean, Premier Li Chang saying we, we didn't uh, resort to massive stimulus, but last year we saw a 15 percentage point increase in the, com- in the country's debt to GDP ratio. That's even worse if you take out this 2% because of the base um, effect. If you look at total social financing, which is sort of a proxy, isn't it, for, mm. uh, for borrowing, that was 27% of um, GDP. So in effect, um, the country is borrowing 20% percent of GDP to get 5% growth. It's not very sustainable, is it? It's not very effective, obviously, if you have 20% of GDP to get 5% growth. But again, it's not sustainable because it's totally misdirected. It's like giving an alcoholic aspirin to get rid of the disease. Mm. It doesn't work. The, 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 The real problem is this party state capitalism, which basically means that the party can tell private companies what the party wants them to do not the government tells the private tells the parties the the private parties but the 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 party tells the private sector what to do and mm. favorite sectors at present would be like tech renewable energy healthcare consumer goods artificial intelligence biotech and electric vehicles those are favored sectors those are the ones that are doing the government's bidding that may change so you have the risk of arbitrary changes of mind at the top you have the risk of p- 
people not really believing in these sectors, not really knowing if the sectors are quite as capitalistically driven as one thinks. So there are whole it's 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 the the policy framework is a cyclical framework of fiscal stimulus, but that that does not apply to a structural problem of policy making itself. And of course, these sectors, just because the government has deemed these sectors important for investment, doesn't necessarily make it productive investment, does it? As we saw with the property sector, I mean, the government once upon a time thought investment in property was very productive. And look what happened to that. Well, and absolutely, Peter, that's very astute. And and again, my concern there is that, again, because I'm a von Hayek, one of his last students, is that if people sitting in little offices are trying to conjure up what they think the market might want and what demand might look like, what market demand might look like, in, including here in Hong Kong, they're going to have some real rude awakenings because the market doesn't tick like that. It doesn't mm. listen to the government. It does what it wants. So is, is there a role for the market in this this party state capitalism? It seems that the government feels that in this sort of concept, they can sort of move the market, bend the market to their will um, and, and manipulate the, the markets to, to try and achieve um, these policy goals. Well, there is a role because the, the government wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants to on the one hand, say, be boss, basically, and it, it puts people, party cells into every company, these in, into every company, as far as I know, mm. um, also has very, very minimal uh, 1% ownership and huge le- leverage in the decision-making department of these companies. But on the other hand, it wants the private sector to flourish as the private sector should. That just can't work by, by logical definition. Mm. It's an oxymoron. Mark, what, what do you make of this? Where, where does the market fit in um, at the moment? Because it does seem that this is not really, we're moving away from a market-orientated economy, aren't we? Yeah, I tend to think so. And I also uh, read uh, Hayek. And I, I, I tend to think that uh, the, in at least in the past uh, uh, 15 years, um, we, we, we can see that it has be, there has been a tremendous change in in a, a decision making regime, and uh, there is a lack of a uh, uh, spontaneous order uh, 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 that that make uh, the the whole thing work, and uh, and also we we know quote uh, to 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 quote Hayek uh, the use of knowledge in society uh, has been ignored uh, to a very large extent. If uh, there is a uh, you know, a, a visible hand uh, that direct everything uh, instead of uh, being uh, spontaneous. Right. Uh, I, I, th- I think it is very true. And um, what about deflation? That's one of the big problems that the economy has um, at the moment. How big a problem is that becoming? Because we, we, I've been hearing people talking over the past few months when China has slipped into deflation that it's important that policymakers act so it doesn't become a spiral, a deflationary um, spiral. Yeah. But are we entering a de- deflationary spiral already or are we close to it? Who are you asking, Peter? Um, both of you. NGO, you, you, you start. Um. If I may take the lead then. Um, yes, I think we are getting into a Japanification of the Chinese economy to the extent that inflation was in December down 0.3% year on year. We're not going to digit bash and say that's the end of inflation in China, but it's, 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 a, it's a worrying sign because deflation has two fundamental dangers. One is domestic and the other one is international. The mm. domestic one is that 
people say, well, if it's going to get cheaper tomorrow, then why buy it today? So they put off spending. They put off spending so much that companies say, well, if people aren't spending, if they're putting it off, then we can put off investing and hiring. And down goes this spiral that you alluded to before. Secondly, because that domestic economy is then slowing down, the government decides, well, actually, we'd better than pump the export machine and sell ultra cheap goods abroad. In other words, goods that have perhaps been subsidized by the state. And that then, of course, gives rise, as we had in, in the Great Depression, to trade wars. And indeed, Congress is, is gearing up for these trade wars yet again, because they're, this is exactly what they're fearing. And, and having done this on, on the Hill for years, um, that the that the Chinese are dumping, for instance, it costs about 60% less to buy a Chinese um, electronic ve electrical vehicle in the States than it does a U.S.-made electrical vehicle. So that's, all th so that's not good. Mark, um, deflation, I mean, in, in, when you have times of deflation, you've got prices and wages falling, but the value of the debt that we've just been talking about, that doesn't fall at all. So it sort of raises the burden of repayments, doesn't it? So presumably, this is a, should be a big worry for a country like China that's accumulating public debt at a fast rate. Uh, deflation is a much uh, more difficult situation than inflation. And actually for the the authorities, I think it is the first priority for, for them to change that kind of expectations. Otherwise, um, they, it, it won't be good. And um, I tend to think that uh, as much as uh, price stability is uh, good for the long term and the real economy, the real goods and services, uh, the productions uh, are, are the most important thing, at this very moment, I think you, you can't uh, deny that the uh, asset inflation uh, or the inflation in a general sense uh, for the goods and services is very important. At least we can have that kind of uh, uh, management in uh, inflationary expectation. I suppose we can uh, pump up the inflationary expectations to uh, 4%, 6% or so. Uh, it may be more aligned with the uh, so-called uh, GDP growth rate. And actually, the debt level, I think, uh, the debt level per se is not uh, the most important thing. The most important thing is whether we can generate enough or sufficient uh, growth rate in uh, in GDP or the other measures. I, I think it is very important. But right now, of course, we can know we know that uh, the cyclical factors combining with the uh, structural problems makes that very difficult. Uh, so at, at this moment, I I, I think inflation. Uh, 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 but it seems that it, it, uh, it is going back to square one because the Chinese authorities, uh, they, they say that, OK, we have uh, long term problems. We are not going to uh, favor the short term uh, solutions uh, at expense of the long term problems. So uh, that, that's why uh, most of the people, the investors who are forward looking, they tend to lose their confidence because, because they can, cannot see a workable solution at this very moment. And is that the reason why? Because they want long-term solutions, not short-term ones. Why they're not cutting interest rates in the face of deflation? They had an opportunity, didn't they, on Monday to cut the medium-term lending facility. Majority of economists thought they would, but they passed that up. Uh, it is very difficult. Uh, I, I think um, uh, I'm afraid that I, I, I have mentioned too many times of the difficulties uh, uh, within, within uh, several minutes. But it is true that it seems to be some kind of a liquidity trap. Uh, uh, as much as we have a lot of a, a very abundant uh, liquidity uh, and you can count the money supply in whatever sense you have, 
uh, it seems that it doesn't work as we wish. Um, and actually, people lose confidence simply like, like, like that. And usually, uh, the liquidity trap uh, may, uh, may happen more likely around the level of interest rate at uh, zero uh, for, for, for nominal rates. But right now, even though it is not zero, it seems that uh, more money supply doesn't work at well. So uh, it is very difficult. So I, I think the the uh, the whole uh, the whole uh, problem the the main the main thing is about is about the confidence and the confidence mm-hmm. is about uh, uh, the expectations of the decision making regime uh, within the authorities. I I think that gives the public a, a very important uh, piece of message. Now, Enzio, the authorities seem to think they've come up with a clever ruse here. They, they, they're going to borrow $139 billion of speci- uh, through special bonds, new debt issuance through special bonds. These special bonds are, are quite rare. They've only been done four times in the past. But the, the ruse seems to be that, first of all, they are ultra long. So in other words, it will take several decades to pay them back. Um, and also, they don't count special bonds as part of the normal um, budget. But I, I suspect it's not going to be quite as simple as that, is it? It sounds a bit like a schoolboy trick. It's probably Peter paying Paul because who's going to buy a very, very long-term bond that pays you not point diddly squat every year? Um, mm. I think what's going to happen there is that the Treasury or the US, uh, the, the, the the finance ministry will end up buying most of the bonds, if not the public, if not the PBOC. And so the, we have exactly what we've got in the US, um, which is that the Treasury is buying up most of the of the debt, which mm. is kind of the idea. And the, um, so, yeah, and the same route as Japan as well, the, and the, exactly the same route as Japan. And what Mark was saying very correctly before that by pumping up the money supply, you're not getting the what we as economists call the transmission mechanism to kick in to get things going again, because people, as we all both all three of us agree, have no confidence. For me, that means no income security, no job security. And Mark, let me ask you about um, this plan for the silver economy that Beijing um, has announced. Um, They want to cater to the rapidly aging population that need all these services like meal delivery, nursing homes, entertainment uh, options. They're going to build special parks and brands for uh, the silver um, economy. It's it's, it's, uh, suspected to be worth um, several trillion dollars. Is this a way of of boosting the economy, given that uh, that China's a rapidly aging uh, society? Uh, instead of uh, being a solution, I think it is actually one of the problems that caused uh, the, the the difficulties in, in, at this very moment. We need uh, the human capital formation uh, to give the long-term economic growth and development. Uh, but right now, we can see uh, in terms of the aging population, maybe China, mainland China is just next to Japan. Uh, so the situation is that, that, is that they are going to dissave. Uh, the the from from the wealth and uh, somehow uh, I I think uh, uh, but 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 it seems that at at at, at the uh, on the other on the other hand uh, especially in terms of the wealth accumulation they are going to uh, uh, they, they they find nowhere to to go uh, so it is very important that uh, all these factors somehow make them very uh, insecure I, I I tend to agree with uh, uh, and so that they they don't have the, the job security or the income security. These are very important things. Uh, so, uh, if uh, given th- that kind of situation, uh, we may have to resort to the 
to the authorities again, uh, to the plant economy again, to the to the directions from the top again. So it, it is not very healthy in in the long term, and uh, that kind of burden it is not easy. Uh, if you uh, if you take reference from the other countries, it is not easy. Maybe uh, it will be uh, solved ex- at the expense of the uh, healthcare system, uh, higher price in uh, hospitalization. All these things, it is not easy. It is not going to be easy. But especially in mainland China, given the huge population, it is very very difficult. What do you think uh, about this NGO? The, the silver economy in China is estimated to be about 30 trillion yuan. That's over 4 trillion uh, US dollars over the next um, decade. But as Mark was intimating, this is sort of seems to be another area where uh, the government's trying to direct investment. Yes. And what's going to happen is that it's going to be spending a lot of that bond that it's raised probably on these um, aging, old age poverty. So there is to put it very harshly, um, there's no transmission mechanism, no multiplier effect, because if old people spend, it doesn't have the same effect as if a young family spends. Okay. Let me ask you a bit, a little bit more about what Premier Lee said at Davos. He was talking about innovation and he was saying that shouldn't be used to restrict um, other nations. He was saying we need to have healthy competition, mm. bring out the greatest vitality. And that's the only way to do that is to enhance uh, cooperation um, in innovation. He didn't uh, call out any specific countries um, when he was talking there, but I suspect we know who is meaning. Following that speech, Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, mm. responded, that we want to tell our Chinese friends we don't want to decouple, but we need to de-risk our supply chains in some ways. And she pointed out that China itself is preparing to put export controls on semiconductor uh, uh, production. And this doesn't help in the trust building um, that uh, Premier Li Chang was complaining about. What do you make of his comments there? I think that he is making the right political sort of ambient noises to placate the overseas listers actually we're nice guys and we're not going to make we, we we want everybody to succeed and i don't think that china has any sort of evil plans for anybody i think that that's it's perfectly reasonable it's it's very diplomatic what he was saying um i think this whole decoupling thing is a little bit of a myth to me having specialized in direct investment because the reason that companies go abroad in the first place is not really as much to capture the export market, even if that makes headlines. It's to capture the huge domestic market. In this case, of course, China has quite a few consumers. So cars are built for the Chinese in China. Computers are built for the Chinese in China. And I think that this whole decoupling thing is yet again one of these fads that is brandished about. If anything, it's been recoupling because now a lot of the Chinese overseas production, the Chinese exports are going, as we well know, through Mexico, through Chinese companies in Mexico, sending it to the US. So there's no decoupling going on. It's just a recoupling. It's a reshifting of the chessboard. Yeah, but Mexico is now exporting more to, uh, to the US than China is. Absolutely. But I don't think that that's the reason why the Chinese economy has gone south. Again, I come back to my um, ideological point that it's because of the, the policy making that that um, President Xi has decided that he wants the party really to rule everything. 
Um, Mark, let me turn to the US. Christopher Waller, who's a, a Fed governor, said on Tuesday that the Fed's within striking distance now of taking inflation back to its 2% target, although markets focus more on another comment uh, that he said after that, which was that there's no reason to move as quickly or cut as rapidly as in the past. When he, when he said that, we saw uh, US stocks fall, bond yields um, shoot up uh, once again. What do you make of uh, those comments, Mark? Uh, I uh, I ha- have uh, formed the, um, uh, the 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 idea that uh, the uh, central banks officials actually they have uh, uh, regarded the current situation is some kind of a, uh, a achieving uh, or already achieved uh, the sufficient restrictiveness uh, that they have mentioned before. Uh, that's why they're confident to have a pausing decision for for three four times. And the current question is whether uh, staying for longer is going to stay there uh, for a little bit longer or just uh, to have the rate cut. But of course, given the current data, uh, some kind of inconsistency between CPI and PPI and uh, as well as the uh, other situation like the strong labor market, uh, strong con- uh, consumer confidence, all these these kinds of things uh, make it uh, a little bit. Uh, tricky, uh, and I don't think that the Fed officials are going to have the rate cuts uh, at a phase uh, at a pace uh, as fast as uh, the the market participants would like to be. Uh, so maybe it is somewhere in between, in the middle. Uh, maybe by uh, the the third quarter this year there w- might be uh, a rate cut. But current currently, I don't think that uh, the, the the market's uh, overestimation is uh, well justified. But of course, it doesn't mean that there won't be. Uh, the rate cut. But I, I think the timing, uh, especially uh, given the experience in the last uh, two, three years, we can we can see that uh, the, the, the Fed actually listens to market, but uh, the Fed doesn't entertain the market participants. Uh, so maybe it has just to be data dependent uh, for, for a little bit more. Um, NGO, those investors banking on six rate cuts this year, are they going to be disappointed? I think they're going to be very disappointed because the the November per capita expenditure inflation, which is the figure that the Fed looks at, stood at 3.2% year on year. That's 60% above the Fed's target of 2%. So it's still, there's a long way to go. Now, another Fed governor, Rafael Bostic of the Atlanta Fed, and he also votes in these open market committee meetings this year, he was saying actually that the the inflation, the, 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 the slide in inflation is beginning to stall. In other words, inflation isn't falling, isn't decelerating as much as um, it was before. That lends into my old chestnut that there's a lot of structural inflation going on. And that that then means that this per capita expenditure inflation of 3.2% isn't going to get down to that 2% so quickly. So that then means that the Fed can't just sort of go and willy-nilly cut rates because the target rate that it's it's set in its mind, 2% on per capita is a consumer price index, that's a per capita expenditure prices, that just is 60% off the mark already. Mm. And also there's some funding issues coming up as well, aren't there, which also adds Absolutely. to the risks. Well, yeah, on the 19th of January, that's this Friday, by the way, the Fed, the, the, the not the Fed, of course, the US federal government sensibly runs out of money unless the Congress, which has created a deal but it has to pass that deal. It's not passed the deal yet. It's only got the deal done just before Christmas, I believe. Um, mm. And if it does, um, then if, if they don't pass the deal in Congress, 
by this Friday U.S. time, obviously, then things like the Transport Department, Defense, they get cut massively. Um, not the not the Supreme Courts, not the U.S. Treasury, not the Federal Reserve. They keep on operating, thank heavens. But certainly the U.S. Defense Ministry will get chopped February the 2nd, actually. And that, of course, can't be good news for these Ukrainian and, and Middle Eastern wars that we've got going. Okay, Mark, final thoughts from you on the markets. Um, Hong Kong shares slumped the most in three months uh, yesterday. The Hang Seng's now at a 14-month low, down almost 7% so far since the beginning of the year. Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong down to their lowest level in the year. The CSI 300 on the mainland, almost a five-year low. We don't seem to be improving from where we were at the end of last year, do we? What's going wrong? Uh, everything goes wrong. Uh, I, I think uh, the, the whole thing is about confidence. And actually, Hong Kong is highly dependent on the mainland Chinese economy. Uh, mm. Whether there, there can be a uh, uh, jumpstart again uh, or at uh, any time soon, it is very important, very crucial. Uh, but of course, I, I, uh, to, uh, there may be some positive side to, to that. Uh, I think the Hong Kong, especially the retail investors, uh, they start to diversify more into different regions and different kinds of instruments, uh, not just Hong Kong stocks, not just uh, Hang Seng Index. Uh, so um, I think the actual damage uh, to the investors um, may be decreasing, or, or, or in 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 a marginal sense, they they actually decreasing, and because uh, they have more wealth or a more proportion of their wealth uh, putting into other other places, other asset classes. And I think it is a very healthy thing uh, for them to get rid of the home buyers uh, in, in, in the long run. Okay. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts. You heard there Mark Toe, who is Managing Director of Asset Management at Wing Fung Financial Group. Enzio von Fowl, a regular Wednesday commentator and Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Morning, Nick. Good morning to you. Now, how's this uh, slush scandal going in uh, in Tokyo? Is is it coming close yet to uh, to becoming a major problem for uh, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida? Um. He's does perfectly capable of producing his own uh, problems without a uh, <laughs> political scandal. Uh, so he was sliding anyway. But uh, I, I think the rumour in the markets is that, um, that this was all touched off by the uh, Ministry of Finance that uh, wants to hurt the uh, the Abe faction, which it sees understandably as behind the um print and uh, and spend strategies of uh, Bank of Japan printing money and then it goes out and, and spends a lot. Uh, whether or not that's true, uh, certainly I, I think the effect is to hurt the uh, the Abe faction. Mm. Um, and the Abe faction certainly was behind the, uh, the spending. Uh, and if the spending comes down, then uh, perhaps we'll get um, some less extreme policies out of the, the Bank of Japan. Does the, does the Bank of Japan have to take this into account as well? And when it's considering whether or not it can get extract itself from its negative interest rate policies, is this any sort of impediment to that? 
What, officially? No, I think the um, officially central banks are, are not in any way influenced by um, by politics. Uh, that's uh, the official story. The real world is uh, is slightly different. All of them um, are uh, pushed around by uh, by politics. What we have in Japan is a cost of living crisis uh, that is waterboarding the the consumer with uh, prices going up much more than uh, uh, wages are. It, it was. Um, Entirely irresponsible of the Bank of Japan to uh, to start a, a money printing uh, party uh, without even considering uh, how it was going to get wages up, and so the the political pressure is: please, can you uh, wind this in? Uh, it's the the number one uh, political issue in in Japan at the moment. A major area of spending, of course, is is defence, and the Kashida government's wanting to be raising that from one percent to two percent of GDP. Um, how how is that impacted by all this turmoil? that's going on on the on the political side well obviously that's the uh, the one area where um, the change is large over the next few years um, and the uh, the left would dearly like them to um, uh, uh, to not do that um, I think on balance the uh, the government's going to do its damnedest to um, to do that because it's uh, essentially tied up with uh, with promises to the US that Japan will make a little more effort to uh, to defend itself uh, certainly things are, um, are quite tough on on the uh, western end of the the Pacific um, and uh, US could use some help. Do you think Mr. Kishida is going to survive this or are we going to be looking at a new prime minister before the end of the year? No, 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 he's toast. Um, the um, the um, me- median um, life expectancy of a prime minister post-war is about one and a half years. Um, uh, so you, you've got to think of them as, as disposable chopsticks. Um, this one served its purpose as being a, a relatively uh, safe pair of hands, um, if a little bit soporific. Um, but I, I think... Uh, People have been unimpressed with him. Um, he, he has, um, in an unpleasant way, tried to make uh, use of this scandal to hurt the competing factions uh, rather than being a good um, team member. Um, and I think the important thing is he's dragging down the support for the whole party. Um, we're coming up on the time when we're going to need election or think, start thinking about elections. Um, and uh, as a result, it'd be nice to get rid of him and get a new one with the honeymoon effect as a, um, a, 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 as a timing for, uh, for elections. And are there any obvious candidates who are uh, a shoe-in here? <sighs> Oh gosh! Uh, you, you look at the possible um, uh, candidates, and they're uh, they're not wildly exciting. Uh, what you've got to avoid doing is is looking at the uh, the polls because you've got to remember it's the uh, the lawmakers that uh, choose the uh, the leader, not um, not the 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 hoi polloi. So, Ishiba um, people talk about no, he doesn't have the support within the um, within the factions. Koizumi way too young at forty two, um, and uh, I think. Looking more likely at the moment, um, Cornell, he's a for- favourite with a foreigner, so he'd be great for the market, uh, or uh, Takaichi, who's reasonably in line with um, with uh, Abe thinking. You know, when, when we look at this from overseas, whenever there's a change in prime minister or a candidate is nominated, for us who overseas who maybe don't follow Japanese politics so much, it always seems to be the nominee is another old man whose name we've never heard of. Is there any chance at all that maybe it's going to be someone younger or maybe a female candidate? 
Well, obviously, Japan's not going to uh, not the gerontocracy that uh, the US is at the uh, at the moment. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think um, post-war, the average age of a prime minister has been uh, 64. Uh, Abe came in at uh, at 52. It would be nice to have a, a younger one. But uh, I, I think globally, there's a dearth of decent leaders. And we'd, we'd just be happy to have uh, um, a quality uh, prime minister for a change. One that would stay around long enough for us to learn his name any chance of it being a female candidate um well takaichi is um is reasonably female but um i, I think uh, it's not i mean of course the us has never had a uh, a female president either um it's tougher for her she doesn't seem to have the um uh, the support for it but uh, but it's not out of um, out of the question okay let me ask you about this uh, name and shame campaign by the uh, the Tokyo Stock Exchange to to try and lift uh, valuations of, uh, of of listed companies um how's that going this is going to be the first month of it isn't it what what are companies saying or doing about this well, I think the simple answer is it's doing badly. Um, <laughs> asked companies back in um, in March whether the companies could come up with a plan to get their share prices up, and uh, particularly if they're trading below book, to uh, try and get returns above the cost of capital. Um, even for the prime uh, market, uh, essentially 50% of, uh, of not disclosed. That's 50% of companies that are trading below book. Um, for, for the standard, it's uh, it's eighty five percent haven't um, haven't disclosed a plan. So below book without a plan. Um, I, I think there should be a charge of um, of impersonating a corporate officer. It, it, it's it's um, <laughs> it's hard to say that they're doing their jobs. <laughs> so we've got the the TSE has released this list now, hasn't it, of, of companies that have um, complied. So if you're an investor, what, what are you supposed to do having got this list? Yeah, I've got a little list. None of them be missed. Um, I think um, it's tough, that list. I mean, what the uh, the exchange wants them to do is um, investors should um, should put uh, pressure on companies to uh, to up their game. So uh, I say to investors, take that list. And uh, if you own the companies on it and they haven't come up with a plan, um, I, I think it's not too late to put in a proposal for the annual general meeting to uh, eject the board. If they're not doing the job, you know, bin the bumps. Um, but um, I don't think it's as simple as being able to say, you've got a list of those with and without plans and you, you uh, short one along the other. I don't think it's that simple. Can you give us a sense of just, just how low are these price to book ratios in, in Japan if you compare them to, say, the US um, and, and Europe? Well, I mean, uh, typically uh, at the moment, fifty uh, percent of um, of topic stocks are trading below book, whereas the equivalent for the the S and P fifteen hundred, so the broader um, index, is uh, is a bit under uh, under ten percent. Okay, so so quite uh, quite compelling, and of course the Nikkei two two five at a thirty three year high now. I think when is it back to nineteen ninety March nineteen ninety? We have to go um, to to see things back at this uh, back at this level. I remember them from my days back in Japan. Well, the thing I'm more keen to know is: Are we going to get back and reach that all time high? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly remember those days myself in my my days of hair. Um, I think the um, the valuations aren't particularly stretched, especially when you bear in mind the uh, um, the opportunity cost of capital, so the um, the government bond rate. That does seem to say um, Japan's got room to go a bit for it, bit for, further. Its profits are growing a bit better than um, than most. Um, I think that what we're going to get actually is the uh, the pain trade. As um, U.S. rates are going to come down, allowing the uh, yen to uh, to strengthen a bit, the effect on profits isn't to her isn't that large, and we'll get profits up, share prices up, um, yen stronger, um, and people who aren't in the market will feel the pain. And is Japan also benefiting because it isn't China? We seem to have this new asset class now, don't we? Of Asia, um, ex-China. Yes, we certainly do. Um, of course, it, it used to be um, Asia x Japan when Japan was the uh, the world's uh, second largest economy, um, and it really needs to be um, Asia x China. Um, certainly, there the seems to be money coming out of Japan into um, out of China into Japan. Um, a number of um, investors are changing their uh, their mandates to uh, to include all Asia, not uh, Asia x uh, Japan. Um, although, if you look at the flows, the money that came in last year seemed to have been predominantly Europe. It's possible that it's China-related you know, um, funds moving, uh, European ones moving to, uh, to Japan. And we are seeing uh, Chinese uh, Chinese fund managers. They're also big buyers of Japan, aren't they? We're seeing that through some of the exchange-traded funds uh, that invest in Japan that are listed over in uh, China. That's absolutely the case. Um, certainly hearing a lot of interest and getting a lot of uh, re- requests ultimately out of China. Well, keeping our fingers crossed that we reach that new all-time high fairly uh, fairly soon. Where was it? It was about 30, just below 39,000, I seem to remember, wasn't it? It certainly was. It would be nice to get back to those highs before I retire. (laughs) I think you may well be uh, satisfied with the performance. Thank you very much, Nick. That's Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. And thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Manulife Investments. We're also going to talk about Asia's frontier markets with Rushir Desai of Asia Frontier Capital. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 